Hey listeners, Dennis here. On this episode, you will get to hear from the senior vice president at Roadster and a prior guest of the show, Amit Chandarana. Amit and I go through a few different things in this podcast episode, starting with Starbucks and Chipotle and how their app has demonstrated that time is a currency in the online retailing experience. And if you're in the market for a car between now and end of the year, we give you an outlook of what you can expect with deals. And lastly, Automotive News has published their top 100 women in automotive, and Amit and I cover some of the data points that is common to all the women in that list. But before we get to today's episode, a few announcements. Stay tuned for some upcoming episodes, one of which is the Van Life miniseries. Van Life is this new cultural phenomenon that has taken over the entire world, as a matter of fact. And I have interviewed a few different van lifers, and I will be putting that together for a miniseries coming out Thanksgiving weekend, so be sure you are subscribed to the podcast. Also coming up is a recording I did with IAA, Insurance Auto Auctions, a publicly traded company, and I did a recording with their CEO, Mr. John Ketz. That's going to be a really good episode to learn more about some of the insights going on in the insurance and total loss space. And one of the things I was very curious about was the amount of salvage U.S. vehicles that get exported out of the United States and to somewhere else. As the cliche goes, one man's trash is another man's treasure. So that episode will be coming out soon and every Friday... I go through the Friday Rundown covering this week in the automotive, transportation, and mobility space with a particular focus on the stock market. Lots of great things coming up on Wisco Weekly. Thank you all to the new subscribers that have been hopping on. I appreciate your support. And a shameless plug, if you were to leave a rating and a review for Wisco Weekly on Apple Podcasts, I would greatly appreciate it. Now, let's get into the episode. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. One of the things I wanted to actually lead with was the fact that, hey, people, you know, we are, we've made it to November. All things considered, we made it to November. Now, you brought up something, though, that to me was like, You know, I understand COVID tough, the economic crisis and, you know, people losing their jobs tough, but you and I have also had to deal with something that really is like a hundred times worse than most people. And that was the death of Kobe Bryant to start off the year. Yeah. um, You know, if I was, if if this was being uh, videotaped, you would see on the wall right next to me, um, there's a framed quote, which says, you asked for my hustle. I gave you my heart. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, like we were saying in like the uh, banter a few minutes ago, 
you know, this year started off just on um, with Kobe Bryant passing away in January. And here's the, the funny thing. I moved to uh, Calabasas, uh, you know, lived in Los Angeles a lot of my life to Northern California for a time. Um, we actually saw the helicopter crash outside of our window. Oh, we could no see way. it um, from the, from our backyard. Now, to be hyper clear before anybody else, you know, pings you on this thing. <laughs> it was definitely foggy, right? It was incredibly foggy. So you couldn't actually see it. We, we heard a, a sound. Uh, that's how close we were. And then we didn't know what it was. And then within a minute or two, we saw probably four or five helicopters in the fog trying to hover over an area in which obviously there was an accident. At the time, we had no idea what it was. We just knew that it was weird that there was a lot of helicopters around, even though we could barely see our backyard. Um, and then as things started to dissipate and, and you know, news started circling through text messages and social media, um, we, we quickly found out. And, and again, every single day I, in my, from my backyard, I could see the side of the hill where the accident took place. So it's, it's a bit weird as a lifelong LA guy and Laker fan, and as you are, um, it's tough to, to have something like that, you know, not only impact the whole world, but for you to be able to literally see it out your window. Uh, actually, out of curiosity, with on on you know knowing the fact that it was so close to you, even though you didn't see the accident per se, and because it was foggy, did you hear the ruckus? Did you hear the explosions, the crash, anything of that nature? Then we we heard what you would just you know, what I was just described as a thud. Okay. Um, because the hill is you know maybe a quarter mile away as a crow's flies, so it's and it was quiet because it was the morning. It was a Sunday, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so you hear a thud and through the fog and you're like, that, that's a bit of an odd sound. And then immediately within 30 seconds, uh, there's a sheriff's department right around the corner from our house. Uh, within 30 seconds, you heard more you know, sirens than I would typically hear on a, on a Sunday morning or at any day, to be fair. And you heard immediately helicopters um, within like two or three minutes. There's a sheriff's station about a minute from my home. That sheriff's station also has a helicopter landing pad. So the sheriff's department has helicopters that take off from there uh, and head over and head right over to the uh, to the scene of the accident. I remember I was it, it it did occur on a Sunday, and I remember I was in line at a breakfast joint getting want to order some breakfast, and there's a long line outside, and I heard the rumors of "Hey, did you hear what happened to Kobe Bryant?" And in my head, I was like. You know, as probably most proud Laker fans are, it's like, you don't know about Kobe Bryant. I know about Kobe Bryant. What is this thing you're about to spew right now? And, and then I heard that he died in a, in a helicopter crash. So then I'm in line and I check my phone and certainly there's all these, you know, uh, social media posts starting to happen. And then, man, the rest of that day was just an absolute, like, solemn fest. I never did cry. However, actually, not that day, at least. Um, but... It was amazing to see the actual worldwide influence that Kobe Bryant had. Were you were you shocked at that, or did did that ever like astound you to see how many people across the world were praising him and honoring him? I, I don't think I was. <clears throat> excuse me. I don't think I was shocked or astounded. I think I was impacted by the myriad of the type of responses. Kobe was a polarizing figure. Um, you know, if you're a Laker guy or a Kobe guy, you loved him, right, through and through. If you uh, were on any other team or you just weren't a Kobe guy per se, um, you hated him, but you hated him in a sports way, right? You, you hated him right. in a manner that, um, like, like I dislike the Giants. Sorry to anybody that's in Northern California listening, but I'm a Dodger fan. Um, the, the thing that actually really just captured me, I would say, 
was the fact that if you remember all of the comments afterwards, the comments weren't necessarily of what a great player, what a champion. Um, it was, it was more about the human being who was a grinder, an incredible work ethic type of person. And most importantly, what an awesome father he was and what an advocate for women's sports he had become because of his girls. Yeah. Right. And, and there's a guy, you know, who's got two girls himself, twins. Um, that part there is what struck me that the comments pivoted from Kobe, the NBA legend to Kobe, the girl dad. Well, yeah, it's uh, that's true. Uh, you have your twin girls. Uh, so you are a hashtag girl dad as well. I am. Uh, yeah. you know, Proudly. I mean, you know, I'd, as much as I want to continue to talk about Kobe, maybe this is actually a good transition point to talk about something else that happened recently. And that was uh, last week or maybe even two weeks ago, Automotive News had published the top 100 women in automotive. Familiar with it? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I think one of the things on there I was going to ask you about here, which is actually going to be kind of interesting. I mean, first off, in the grand scheme of things, do you how do you look at the future of your daughter's mobility? Does that, you know, or, or how do you think about what their place is in this life when they become an adult? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, I probably don't think about mobility like the way Elon Musk and tunnels and millennials do okay. um, as much as, I think more about the automotive industry as it's evolving in a sense. That's where my focus is because of what I do, um, where I came from and where I spend probably, you know, 90% of my work time. Right. Um, but with that, I, I am certainly aware on the peripheral of what's going on from a mobility standpoint. And I'm also reading the same stuff that you are and everybody else, you know, probably listening to this from an automotive standpoint is, is that there is no doubt that a generation of, of individuals out there, call them millennials or even younger than that, just don't see the same type of affinity that, that many of us, you know, in, in our age brackets that might have towards the personal vehicle usage in a sense. And here, here here's, a, here's an example of that, right? So do I think my daughters, if you would have asked me this in January, uh, before uh, you know the pandemic and, and the COVID shifts that are taking place, um, I think it depends on where they were going to be. If you were in a major city in New York or San Francisco, LA, Chicago, then you know I think public transportation, especially as someone who spent a lot of time in England, is viable. I think my daughters would have probably um, partook in that, and it would have had nothing to do with the catalyst that right. is COVID, yep. mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But there, there, there certainly was so many opportunities for people to make money in the shifting um, technology of, of automotive, like whether or not it's going to be car sharing or peer to peer or app based usage. It, you know, there are a lot of kids out there, I would say that are, that are, you know, I said kids, but probably 20 to 30 years old. They, they probably have used Uber instead of getting a car and extended the, the lack of needing to buy a vehicle for a long time, right? Um, now, there's probably those that would actually shift in the other direction. So I don't want to necessarily get an Uber or public transportation. And in fact, we're seeing that in the automotive industry. We're seeing personal automotive usage actually starting to go up. So I'm, I'm confused by the whole, by the whole thing. There's no doubt about that. You know, what's interesting is that there's this one gal I can think about who has, she's contacted me. We're, we're constantly in touch. She's living, she, she's living in Los Angeles. She's in her late twenties, moved out to Los Angeles from the East coast. And, uh, she was perfectly okay 
to pay $700, $800 a month in Uber expenses. But all of a sudden, when there's the idea of buying a used car that is worth $25,000, that that somehow puts her on edge, knowing the fact that her monthly payment would actually be lower than her actual, you know, ride sharing costs. I thought that was, it was an interesting mindset, right? That like, you only get to that point when you've been told through be, you know, through behavior adjustments, through the people you follow, through all the, these different trends, that somehow having a higher monthly cost in, in Uber is worth it, <clears throat> was, is more worth it than actually having your own personal vehicle. Yeah, I think it's it's. I think the word you use there that I would underline in bold is the is the mindset, right? Is the mind share of that. Um, I think the time burden. You know, we talked about this. I think we did this first podcast we did together was February two thousand eighteen. It was two years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so almost three years almost ago. Almost three right? years you, ago. Actually, yeah, almost yeah. three years ago. Right. Um, and so, um, <laughs> go, going back to, to that to that thought, uh, if if you were to go back to kind of February two thousand eighteen and, and where we were in this conversation. Um, time is, I think I mentioned to them, time is the new currency. There's yeah. no doubt about it. I think people are in that position where if, if the amount of time I can save by not having to service a vehicle, not having to buy insurance, go through the rigmarole of the car buying process in, in the world. Um, if I can save that time by spending the same amount of money, give or take, and, and not have to have any sort of burden or responsibility, I think that's the reason people are shedding it is just the responsibility factor. Um, and look, to be fair, brutally honest, I, I'm, I'm like everybody else been working at home for probably six to eight months. You know, as a, as a car guy from the standpoint of being in the industry, I went three months recently uh, where I didn't actually have a vehicle anymore. I sold my car because the used car prices were so high. I didn't need an extra car and I didn't have a car. And that was the first time since I was 16 years old that I didn't have a car for three months. How was that process of, uh, you know, selling your car? And again, understanding that because you and I are part of the industry, we not only know the little hacks, but we also know people to streamline that process. How, how did you go about uh, trading in your car or selling your car? Yeah, interestingly enough, none of my relationships uh, vetted, netted any any value there or anything. I, <laughs> goes to show you my relationships. Well, that's first right. Of all. And in the car business, you know, you would basically say that everyone's a jack. So I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, I know, I know car dealers. So car dealers are like, oh, I'll take that off your hands for a good price. And I said, yeah, I wanted a great price. <laughs> so in fact, that's what I did. I just I just put it out there. I you know I listed my vehicle on one of the listing sites, took good pictures of it. I pay attention to the industry. I know what the used car values are, uh, and a private. Uh, consumer came and bought my vehicle from me for more than I was asking for within a couple days. Uh, so it was a seamless experience. And, you know, obviously I'm paying attention to used car value. So I think I got it at the height of where I needed to. Are you aware of the, uh, the difference between how many used cars are sold through the retail process, like the official retail process, franchise or independent store versus how many in the private market? I'm highly aware of that. And it's only because I just came back from a meeting where I had to be, had to be on top of that. Uh, so the used car market is about 39.8 million vehicles per year. And uh, this uh, article and this reference point that was done by an investment bank stated that about 50% is still peer to peer. So just think about that, right? 40 million vehicles, only 20 million are still being transacted by independent lots uh, franchise dealerships selling independence or the Vroom and Shifts and Carvanas of the world, CarMaxes of the world. So yeah, 
Yeah. Over about 50% of that is still between me and you selling cars to each other. Yeah, I was actually amazed. I came across that stat most recently. And again, uh, the the numbers that I saw, I think this was through, again, either Automotive News or Cox. It was it was right there. But even more so, I was just surprised that there was actually those many private party transactions in the used car market. Again, like near 50%, which is, I mean, it, it almost makes me wonder why more people would not look to start doing that even more so, or, or I, I guess, I mean, I guess they are already, but I guess I'm, I'm just, I was just shocked at how many people s- still sell their cars private party. It's, it's clearly, uh, there's clearly an addressable market. There's clearly an opportunity. I mean, you look at the valuations of some of these companies that have gone public um, and the, that you look at the rewards of the valuations uh, for the number of vehicles that they're selling, right? There, there really isn't a, uh, entity that sells more than two percent of all the used vehicles in the industry to date, and I think that's you know CarMax is close to that. Um, so yeah, it, again, you know me, I don't like the term disruption very much. Um, I think realistic progression are the real terms that I like, but there's certainly a lot of open space here. What is what? What's some of your kind of uh, favorite companies aside, of course, from Roadster? What are some of the other favorite companies that have been um, on your radar? And, and maybe not because of the realistic progression that they are embodying, but maybe because of some other nuanced point. You know, what, what are some of those companies that are top of mind for you? Yeah. And, and just so we're clear, are you, are you referring more dialed into the automotive industry? A- anything. I mean, if anything, I actually I want to get to know in your head like how Amit thinks about things, how he sees things. And then as a, you know, as a byproduct of that, what are the companies that he actually looks to and either is, you know, thinking about how he he is criticizing and, you know, analyzing this company. So you could do a better job in your role at Roadster, or is there a model company out there that like, you're like, man, we, we need, I need to do my job. So we get to that level. You know, I I think I said this, a while back, uh, I pay attention to a podcast um, that's called Robin Hood Snacks, um, where they talk about a lot of new companies. Um, and so it's usually, I'm usually impacted by, by that one or whatever else, um, you know, comes across my, my desk in a sense. But it's not any company in particular. I think it's the sector or the opportunity for um, how, how you impact change from a time standpoint. I think I think efficiency really is this currency. Um, I think time savings at the end of the day is starting to become absolutely the most valuable thing in the entire world, right? So, you know, when we look at uh, technology at Roadster, when we're constantly evolving the product, we're, we're not only looking at how do we make it easier for consumers to buy, but more importantly, how do we make it easier for dealerships to continuously use our technology to make things more efficient for the salesperson, for the manager, and for the consumer, right? So, I mean, I go back to things that are, are, aren't even new, to be fair with you. Um, like what? I go back to the Starbucks app. You know, I, I keep using this as an example, but um, if you look at the Starbucks app, it is still a very omni-channel experience. Most of the time, I would say 90, 95% of the time, people using it, like myself, we're going into Starbucks to pick this thing up, but we've, picked, we've used the app prior to getting there because we want to shave a minute. We want to shave two minutes off this entire process. I do this all the time when we're at conferences. I'm like, who has a Starbucks app on their phone? And everybody raised their hand. Who's had a cup of coffee from Starbucks in the last week? Everybody raised their hand. I'm like, hey, would you guys mind stop using the app and just going in? And, and everyone kind of looks at me sideways like, no, are you kidding me? And, and, and I go back to them and said, you're doing that to save two minutes, maybe three, because that's how long it takes inside Starbucks. But it's because it's convenient. It's, it's simple. And we are 
hell bent as a, as a, as a human to try to shave um, time out of our day on what we find needless. I always say this all the time. There's car dealers all day long that advertise selling the car in under an hour. What they should be advertising is spend three hours here if you really want to, but you wouldn't have to spend one more minute than you need to, to be able to conduct uh, business with us in that sense. I mean, this is the mindset that, right, we're going back to and changing behaviors on how people perceive spending money, essentially. Uh, I think the one interesting thing about what you're saying, even if you use a Starbucks app to shave two or three minutes, I think it's also just the, you know, the, again, the perception that mm-hmm. that a an app like that has been been you know it's, it's it's led you down this path that it will save you time because i don't use a starbucks app but i use the pizza app for instance and it's happened let's say i don't know two out of 20 times that i use the app that it's my order is not ready and not only is it not ready but i'm waiting there 10 minutes right and it's it's a longer period of time but i've also used the app eight more times after that. And I've, and I will continue to use the app. Right. So there is this perception that we've, that we have internalized and accepted that as long as things are done efficiently, then there's the need to say that spending an hour or less is not necessary anymore. It's a matter of saying, Hey, we will make use of the, of your three hours that you have with us. And the examples, the examples are everywhere. Uh, look at your phone. I mean, if you use Apple Pay, and it's not even Apple Pay. If you have your credit cards attached to your phones, think about this. That you know, that's been happening for a couple of years. Um, I, I wasn't necessarily on the train where I attached my credit cards to my phone because I just didn't. I, I didn't feel like it was safe. COVID happened, and I didn't want to pull out my credit card and put my credit card into a machine at the grocery store. So I updated to the app, and now I can't go back. The app. When I, when I hover it over and use my thumbprint or whatever the case may be, um, that shaving of 15 seconds there is so worth it to all of us. And also there's a perceived benefit of it's, it's less contact, it's cleaner. So I like to take those examples and model those when we go back into Roadster. And, and the one that we certainly like to use a lot is Chipotle, right? Not because Chipotle is revolutionizing anything, but Chipotle's app, or digital usage was higher than probably any fast casual restaurant prior to COVID. Mm. And I think that's the point that we're trying to make is that they, by the way, had this app or digital ordering process for the last two years. They maybe didn't have the largest market share, but they had the most market share of any of these fast casuals, you know, if you compare them to some of their, their comparable restaurants. So the point that we're trying to make there is that those that were um, already doing this and had part, put processes and procedure in place to digitize their sales process, whatever that might be, Chipotle or car dealerships, they are faring much better. And if you go to look at, you know, simply Google Chipotle stock price over the last year and a half, it is outperforming by quite a bit. And I think part of that is that they were ready for this because they saw this coming down the pike. Um, we take that back to the car dealer industry or the, the, the universe that we're in and you know, there's no doubt that our business essentially has tripled over the last you know, seven or eight months. There's a lot of panic buying that took place. Dealers were just needing digital retailing because they had no other way to sell. And I think a lot of those dealers are doing well and some of them are even thriving. But many of them were just trying to figure out how to adapt this technology to their processes. Whereas the dealers that were with us prior to call it March, 
were genuinely thriving. They were thriving, and part of that thriving was that they were whatever it was six months a year ahead in the processes and how the how the how the program works, and then knowing all the little hacks and nuances of optimizing um, this entire digital retail experience. Which you know this this does actually make me inquire. I mean, obviously, Roadster, you guys have a very big footprint into the automotive business, into the specifically the sales side of the business. You know, what what are you seeing either right now and perhaps even towards the end of the year that would, you know, that you could help inform myself and listeners of what the new car market or the used car market is going to be? I mean, are can people expect good deals? Are deals aren't going to be had because, you know, business is just going a little bit slower than usual? And so, you know, people just, again, have to opt and think of things more from an efficiency efficiency standpoint or What's what's the state of the union when it comes to the the rest of the new car used car buying segment for the remainder of this year? Yeah, I think I think I'd give you the same advice I give a lot of family and friends when they're asking about the market. Right, uh, context is king. You got to you got to remember we are ultimately in you know, the epitome of a supply and demand business. Um, at the end of the day, there's only so much impact that a dealer or a brand can have on the pricing of a vehicle. It's primarily supply and demand and macroeconomics. Right. Um, Pandemic hits March, April, depending on where you are in the world. And, and these factories that shut down and their supply chain that shut down is still impacting us today, right? Um, I think your audience is probably educated enough to know that retail dealerships, whether or not they're publicly traded or mom and pop, are making really good money at the retail dealership level right now. The reason they're making such great money at the retail dealership level is, is multiple things. Uh, number one, they optimized for processes, right? You could not have 30, 40 salespeople standing around your dealership. Number two, they right-sized their business, right? Costs got cut in every way, shape, or form in March and April to make sure that they were preparing for the, the future. Um, and then the inventory that was uh, essentially cut down because of those, those factory shutdowns. So there was already a booming automotive market in which you know SUVs were getting more value. Then you take away the fact that you didn't have enough SUVs, pickup trucks, and even some cars out there. So those individuals that wanted to buy a vehicle or needed to buy a vehicle had to pay a premium. So your ASP or your average selling price went up, your cost of goods sold went down. That's the definition of profitability. And that's been able to extrapolate from April, May, all the way through now. Um, I do think that production is certainly starting to catch up. Um, we always say this in the automotive industry, one too few versus one too many. Um, <laughs> the dealers like one too few because they're in this situation where they're profits are higher. They're in a competitive game as well, so yeah. Absolutely. Um, OEMs get paid when they sell cars to dealerships. So one too many is not necessarily a good thing, but you know, being able to get uh, vehicles wholesaled is, is a good thing and dealers always worked with you on that. So I think the shift is starting to take place where inventory is not necessarily, I wouldn't use the term building up, but there's more inventory starting to come around the pike. You could see the allocation of vehicles coming around the corner. So I think we're going to normalize a little bit in that sense. The problem with that statement that I just made is it's probably going to be invalid in about a week, <laughs> right? Because if, 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 the, if the pandemic starts to roar back and they have to shut factories down or they have to make adjustments to the production line, um, then we could be in the same situation again where supply will outweigh demand. And that's the primary factor. Well, I, I think that maybe that would have, you know, should some drastic measures come about in the next week or so that does require more shutdowns than 
A, I, I do think that we have now mapped out a blueprint that we are never going to go to that full shutdown that we went through in, in March. And evidence of this would be the fact that, you know, even dealerships all throughout the country, which the sales department was not deemed essential, now in many states, those dealerships and the sales department specifically are deemed an essential business. Right. So perhaps, and, and again, so uh, from now till the end of the year, I don't know if it'll have that much of an effect if there is a shutdown, but what I am getting from this is that it, it does seem to be the case that deals are out there to be had. However, would they be as aggressive as they would be under, you know, normal circumstances? And and to give you an idea, you know, I remember when I was at an Audi store, you know, be, especially between Thanksgiving and and New Year's, right? And especially as you get to like the last two weeks of of, uh, of December. Oh man, I mean, it is it is just an auction out there of you know giving excessive discounts on vehicles. So many people coming in the store to buy cars. And, you know, the other part about it was that you just had a lot of the automakers that were also in competition with one another wanting to, you know, Mercedes wanted to outdo BMW. Oh, no, you're not going to do that to us, Mercedes. We're going to outdo you. We're going to, you know, sell a three series, 20,000 below invoice. You know, it was just like there was that whole competition. I don't obviously I think you and I both see that that's not going to happen this time around. Yeah, I, I for, for for a couple of reasons, I don't think that that's going to happen. I think everyone's. uh not writing off 2020, but it, it is that thing we were kind of talking about in our preamble, which is 2020 is such an odd year that there's almost an asterisk next to everything, whether or not it's sports or market share, right? So there's, there's certainly a, an odd year where I don't think people are going to necessarily have to discount. I don't think they're at that point from an inventory level, right? I don't know what the day supply out there is, but you, there was dealers a couple months ago that had day supplies under 30 across their entire lineup. That, that's mm, unheard of. That right? is unheard the industry, of. Yeah. When the industry usually sits at 60, 70, 80, 90, depending on the brand and the, and the segment. Um, so I don't think the inventory is at that level. Number one, um, I think you got to look at the different motivations. OEM certainly would like to see some dealers push and try to get some numbers out. Um, but they may not have the inventory to back that up. Dealers are making tremendous amount of money. When, when dealers are making a solid amount of money, they're, they're probably going to hold the course and, and try to maintain that because look, they, they also went to a point where, you know, shut your business down for two, three, four months, maybe where you didn't really make, you know, maybe not even 50% of the type of money you're right. making. So um, I think, I think revenue and profit are going to be the key. So I don't think you're going to see these heavy pushes because the inventory behind that isn't there. We can see the inventory from allocations, you know, three months down the road. Right. Um, I think people are going to be a little bit more conservative. Again, I, I was in this uh, 2008, nine and 10 where, you know, the, the economy primarily, you know, went, went down the, the great recession and it took about three to four years before dealers to bring back staff to a level that was prior to that great recession. So I think dealers are going to be conservative and there's a fundamental shift in what took place. I was just going to actually touch upon that, the staffing element, because while on one hand, there are these digital processes that are in place and, you know, even if I guess I'd be curious to hear your your insight on this based on your experiences with some of the dealerships you work with. So even if you were a dealer that incorporates some sort of digital retail process a year in advance prior to COVID, what I am seeing now is that while dealerships are still profitable and, you know, everything is looking good to them right now, they still have not hired back a lot of staff, which then that does play out in the customer experience because then as uh, customers are calling in, emailing in, doing all these things and wanting to get answers for it. That time is just taking 
you know, more than 24 hours, right? And especially in a lead gen business, if you're supposed to respond back in quote unquote five minutes or under five minutes or, you know, whatever that adage is, then that's, that's kind of awful for the customer experience. Yeah, there's, there is a lot to unpack in what you just asked. And, and if, if you'll let me weave down a couple of paths, I'll, I'll, I'll try to get you a succinct answer. Um, let me start with towards the end. Um, I do not believe that dealers are going to go back to hiring the same staff levels, number one. I don't think they're going to hire the same type of people they have, number two. Um, and number three, I think the way that you just described the sales process has also fundamentally changed. And so then I'll, I'll try to weave this okay, back together, okay. right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to use one quick example. Uh, we're in Southern California. We have earthquakes. Uh, and what happens is when there's an earthquake at the supermarket, all the cans fly off the shelves and they, they flow, fall into the floor. Well, there, there's a team of people at the supermarket that are taking those cans and their entire job is to put those cans back up on the shelves so that when you as a consumer come back in, it feels normal again. Behind the scenes, there's probably a team of engineers that are looking at supermarkets across and figuring out how do I uh, engineer these shelves so that the next time there's a big earthquake, those cans don't fall off the shelves. So there's people picking the pieces up and putting it back together for the here and now. And then there's those that are genuinely working on the fundamental shift that just took place, the earthquake shift in our industry, right? It's like building coats, right? Mm -hmm. By the way, this is so far, great analogy. I'm loving this. (laughs) Continue, please. Yeah, yeah, that's probably the only thing I'm really good at is the analogies. <laughs> okay, so if you take that in the automotive industry, um, you know, we, we actually did uh, dealer impact studies. So we did a dealer impact study prior to COVID. We've done a dealer impact study uh, recently. It's all available on, on Roadster's resources area. But we spoke to not only dealers, we worked with NADA. And the reality is, if you look at statistics from NADA, you know, the benchmark in the automotive industry is about eight to 10, maybe eight to 11 vehicles per salesperson, right? That, that's what it's been. And, and the nutty thing about the number, it hadn't changed in about 35 years, hmm. which just, there's nothing in the world that hasn't much changed in about 35 years. Yeah, okay. It's crazy that that was still the moniker. Yeah. What we're seeing now, because of the advent of omni-channel commerce, digital retailing, online sales, whatever you want to call it, we're seeing that number, we're seeing a lot more you know, juice being squeezed out of that lemon. You're seeing that number at 13, 16, 17. Those that are actually incorporating technologies like Roadster are not seeing a degradation of CSI or net promoter scores either. They're seeing more efficiency and they're actually making more money. So it's the forcing function, right? So this is why when you go back to my first point, dealers are not going to go back to hiring 25 people on the showroom and 15 people upstairs on the internet department. In fact, they're going to this model of maybe I just need 20 people to do it all. I need you to be an internet salesperson and I need you to be able to take a showroom up because let's be clear, 100% of customers are digital customers. Whether or not you Google my phone number, look at my ratings or check my inventory out, everybody in same way, shape or form, uh, I'm just going to be bold enough to say is touching the internet. So they're all internet customers, right? So we're not hiring the same type of people, number two. So we're not hiring 35 people. We're hiring maybe 20 people to handle more stuff. We're not hiring the same type of people. I don't need the person that was, you know, like in office space, like the guy used to say, I'm good with people. (laughs) Remember, Uh, you know, he took the specs from the engineers to the salespeople. It's total office space moving moment there. But, you know, I don't need the person that's good with people as much. Sure. Should someone understand how customer service works and how to answer a customer's questions and solve their hurts? No doubt. But People that were not in the automotive industry are really good at that also. Customer service reps, uh, customer advocates, sales associates. 
So what I need is somebody that can manage some level of technology, understand product and become a product specialist more than anything else and be able to respond and facilitate a customer's needs, right? Because pricing or the, the art of the negotiation in this whole thing is really gone by the wayside. I mean, we're in a market-based pricing economy, definitely on the used car side, so much more on the new car side, right? Because access to information. So, so I'm not hiring the, I hate to say it, the old school car guy, you know, who's got the Donald Duck tie smoking a cigarette up in the front because that's the individual that addresses the walk-in customer. Every customer has probably gone through the internet. So they've either submitted a lead, you've got a breadcrumb or a footprint on them. So I'm hiring a different type of person. That's closing out number two. And then number three, the consumer, all of us actually like the on-demand availability of the tools that are out there provided by Roadster and our competitors or, or the, the ecosystem, right? A consumer is totally fine coming in and wanting to test drive and see the color of that leather or seeing if their car seats actually fit in the back of the vehicle, but they still want to be able to do all the deal-making stuff, upload documents, see what my monthly payment's going to be, add the roof rack for how much, how much does gap insure... That stuff should not be something that I've got to spend an hour with another human being. Well, I, I think that, that that's also the particular area now of the process that I don't want it, it doesn't get overlooked. It just gets understated still because you're right. right. It's like everyone is that shopper. They have done the research. They're they they're already sold, right? So now it's 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 only the job of of whatever process, online process, the actual dealership, whatever business to continue to facilitate that process, right? It does yeah. seem to be the case though at some point. Of course, you need to be able to show the numbers, you need to, you know, sell more, explain all the all the fine details of the process. And again, I don't to me I I still see that as there's not as big of an emphasis yet on that. And again, maybe that's also on the consumer side. That's on the market side. They want that, but they don't exactly know how to take that. And what I find is that a lot of people will still get in, to still get in contact with me to clarify those aspects. Hey, Dennis, so what is what what's left to do on the contract? You know, so I know my payment. I'm great. Payment's great. Everything is great. But what, where else is the dealer going to get me? And that's where they would seek me out, you know, and, and so and I have to I would have to explain to them. I'm like, look, just make sure it's all itemized on the contract. If it is, you're good to go. So two things I've learned, right? You've got you've got a you've got a group of friends that are very not not trustworthy at all. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then number two, to your point, that's exactly my point. We're in an on-demand uh, economy, right? The, it still doesn't make sense that you have to submit a lead to a car dealer to get information about a product they're already telling you they have and the price yeah. that it costs. Totally. It, it just the, the lead-based economy doesn't make as much sense as it did in the previous twenty years, right? So. Even in that example that you gave, um, we have a digital deal sheet. It itemizes absolutely everything. Your warranty products, your F&I products that you might be purchasing, your service protection plans, um, the tax title license. It, it, it really uh, depends on how it's being displayed and how a customer absorbs it. And that's why as a tech company, it's, it's our responsibility to make sure that a consumer has the ability to ingest this information in a cohesive way and then be able to understand it on behalf of this car dealership. More and more, these technologies are doing that. So customers are less confused by the car purchase process. Um, and it's really dialing in the details or editing the, the final uh, components of, of the purchase process versus going through the whole rigmarole of the purchase process. So just think about that example. Instead of spending an hour on those convoluted numbers, those numbers are not convoluted anymore because they're presented in a manner that makes it just as easy as rocket mortgage, where again, your a 30 year decision for your life is actually simplified into an app. 
Um, we've also done that and so many, so many other folks in the industry have done that. So that now you're just understanding the nuances of why gap is actually important or, you know, why, um, an extended service contract actually saves me money going, you know, down, mm -hmm. uh, over time because of the time value of money and inflation rates, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and then there's la one last thing is that we're actually seeing statistically, this is, this is not a gut feeling that dealers are, uh, penetrating more and they're actually making more money on F and I sure. throughout this process, which is, which is a huge area that of concern. I think the dealers had and consumers are happy about it because most of the consumers were not buying products because they felt pressured at the end of a purchase process to buy something that they didn't believe they needed. Well now, just like Apple care and all the best buy warranties, they're getting this information earlier and often in a digestible way. And they're probably wanting that. They just didn't want to be, uh, you know, snuckered into a purchase. Now they're more educated up front. Yeah, well, there's there's definitely the corner cases. I, I, I'm familiar with, as a matter of fact, I even recall sitting in uh, one of uh, a friend of mine looking to buy a car. And she was, I mean, she literally was starting to sweat in the, in the F&I room because she felt the pressure to buy something to increase her payment. And, you know, I had to ask the F&I guy to step out real quick and then have her, like, just calm her down. And be like, okay, look, this is how that process works. This is what it can do for you. And, like, if you want to get it, get it. Great. You know, but your payment is going to go up. At the end of the day, I, you know, after 15 minutes, she actually ended up getting it. But she definitely felt the, you know, the, the hardcore sale coming on done still by your old school car guys that, you know, whatever. I mean, again, I know it's their job to sell, but... But, but that example is exactly, uh, that, that's perfectly uh, on point. The technologies that we've created uh, and allows the customer to see that information much earlier in the sale, sales process. When you're uh, trying to determine what your monthly payment's gonna be on your lease, um, adding tire and wheel protection will be shown very early, right, right along that process. So, you know, your lease is $350 a month. You'll see that you know that you've got dings and dents on your rims. And you know that when you went to go trade in that vehicle, they're penalizing you for that. If they show you that in advance through a video and through, uh, you, you know, sophisticated approaches in technology, that it's an extra $3.46 per month over the life of my lease, um, that's digestible. And so then when you are sitting there at the dealership or at home having the vehicle delivered and they bring it up to you again, it's not you being struck on the side of the head with this new information that you have to process while all this paperwork is being signed. You remember the fact that, mm -hmm. oh yeah, that thing that was $3.46 per month, mm -hmm. that makes sense. And you know, I've done that. So that's something I might want to take advantage of. That's the point. It's the earlier and often and letting people digest information in advance um, is really what's making the bigger impact. Uh, you know, one of the things you had mentioned was, you know, all these kinds of uh, much like rocket mortgage and you could basically buy a, a house and commit to a 30 year loan. And essentially you could docusign that. Right. Uh, I, I'm unfamiliar at the moment if that is possible in the car business now where everything can be transacted so that again, maybe it is docusign. Maybe it's another service. What, what, what's the current status on that right now? Great question. It, it depends on uh, who's trying to sell who. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, there's a lot of companies out there that claim full end-to-end e-commerce or digital transactions. Um, and my answer to that is actually quite simple, right? Um, we facilitate, I would say, probably 95% of the process digitally. Um, but then comes the asterisk. I don't believe that there is anyone that can make it a complete non-wet signature right. environment yep. yet, which is what you're referring to. Exactly, here's yeah. why. Here's why. So first of all, uh, 
buying a car in Los Angeles County versus Orange County, I believe has four different documents just because of the counties. So dealer groups have not optimized for nationwide document structure because cities, counties, states, municipalities, dealer groups, they all have different documents that need to be put into the deal jacket and that require wet signatures. Second of all, California, the largest car market in the entire world, still requires two signatures from the Department of Motor Vehicles that are absolutely required to be wet signatures, right? DL262 and, and another one. Mm -hmm. So anyone that tells you you can buy a car completely online, uh, completely digital, you can't even do that in California. And California is usually the most progressive on getting this type of stuff done. So I don't believe there is a place that exists where it is all done without a wet signature onto a contract of some sort. Um, but that's okay because to be fair, Rocket Mortgage, as we use an example, Tesla and Carvana, which are always used as examples, still require wet signatures. Some of those might mean they're just sending you an overnight package of documents and putting sticky notes to telling you where to sign and you send that back and everything is facilitated that way. Um, and others are just allowing a salesperson to come out to wherever you are and telling you exactly where to sign. The customers are, are more used to this and I think they're accepting of it as long as the rest of the process uh, seemingly seems digital. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've always wondered that if that was a, if that was something governed under franchise law, that those wet signatures needed to be done, or if that was just some sort of negotiation with the DMVs, with your state DMVs office to have that done. I mean, again, I think this is the one thing that I've come to appreciate about for instance, in, in, in our case, the dealership operation, right? This, mm -hmm. this is an official uh, organization that can take money, exchange money, and they're held to an accountability standard. They're held to a law standard. So at some point, then you have to be able to bypass some of these things such as, okay, well, we need to always get these wet signatures. If, if a dealership does say, hey, look, we have Roadster and we can do it all through this process, then, I mean applying my free market principle minded head, I should be allowed to do that. Again, it, that it saves me that efficiency that we had alluded to earlier. It's certainly happening. Uh, again, I go back to the forcing function. I know personally spoken to the folks, at the California new DMV, new car uh, dealer association, excuse me, uh, spoken to dealers who have signed letters to governors of states saying, Hey, we're not in a position to get wet signatures during this global pandemic and the restrictions. So we need to be able to do this via DocuSign. So, uh, you know, laws and, you know, Religion and politics change slowly, uh, but it, it certainly is changing. I believe the I believe there's a lot of governors and municipalities that are looking at making these changes. And, and you know, it's not ballot initiatives; it's just the inertia of yeah, moving right. stuff around yeah, exactly. government. I mean, again, things change slowly, right? That's the whole idea of how you do have twenty year olds that are willing to have a, a monthly expense of getting around to be higher than you know, it, it's higher when they're doing the Uber stuff rather than if they get their personal vehicle. That's that, mm -hmm. that took time to get there. And so as we continue to move forward, again, who knows what will happen with how your daughters may eventually move around in this world. If it is through car sharing, if it's ride sharing, if it's a personal vehicle, public transit, all these kinds of opportunities. All right. Well, they'll, they'll, the one thing I'll say is they, they should be able to sign electronically in those 20 years. <laughs> oh, and that's going to be on you. If, if your daughters can't do that, that's on you, my friend. I'm on it. Uh, which I do want to get back to actually to not just your daughters, but actually going back to the women in automotive. And I, I want to go a little bit more introspective now, right? So I, I think there's actually some very, you know, you're, you're almost like the, the spirit chief of the, of the automotive industry, right? 
And now, look, I, I say that because, yes, not only are you Indian, but you also embody that culture and the heritage. So I'm curious on on what you think about these things. So so sure. in that automotive uh, or in the top 100 women in automotive, they kind of broke down the data. So first off, let me just, I'll just ask you some questions to see if uh, if you know this or, or whatnot, but that's not mm-hmm. a big deal. So uh, of the 100 women, <clears throat> they were asked, have you been given the same opportunities as your male counterparts? How many do you think, how many women said yes? How many said no? What would you say the breakdown is of that? I, I will tell you, I do not know the answer to this, so I am going to take a, a guess here. Yeah. How many of them believe that they had the same opportunities? I would say that 75% did not have the same opportunities. Oh, that's interesting. It's actually the other way around. Seven, it's it's 70, 70% of the women do, uh, do allege that they've been given the same opportunities as male counterparts. So that's, that's interesting, interesting, actually, that you went the exact opposite. I, I'm so I'm so glad that the that I was wrong and not yeah, far off. Yeah, I'm, I think a lot of people finally admit yeah. is yeah. wrong. Yeah. No, no, I'm very proud of being wrong on that one. Uh, uh, some other things here. Um, what's what's your marital status? How many of the top 100 women? I feel like this is actually like a family feud. You know, top 100 <laughs> answers say. Uh, of the 100 women that were interviewed, what do you think their marital status was between married, separated, divorced, never married, widowed, no response? I would say the majority of them are married. That, that's the thing I think we've made a stride in this industry where we're respecting um, you know, the home work-life balance. And you are correct. Uh, 82% of them are, in a, are, are married or in a domestic partnership. How many have children? I'm just going to take a swath of the majority of them have children. I'm going to go 85%. Very, very close. 88%. Yeah. So all of this actually makes me beg the question of if this is some of the data points that it leads to success in the automotive field. And again, this obviously, this is not all that there's other factors on here. Mm-hmm. What, do, what are you seeing as the value of family, of interpersonal relationships in your life. And again, I know that this is a little bit different than automotive talk, but it still comes back to it in how Emit views relationships and family. And so I'm curious on, on how, is, is it a big thing to you? Do you, do you think about it again? You're a father, you're a husband. Yeah, no, I, I this is uh it's a good reflection point. I'll give this to you in a couple examples. Maybe it'll give me a little time to formulate an articulate answer. But uh, prior to March 16th, which is the last time essentially I'd taken a flight, I was on a plane two or three nights a week um, for about three to four years, right? We were building a startup company and we're out there hustling and and working with all of our partners. Uh, And then come COVID, you know, not on a plane for eight months. And and I say this, I, I spent, I have three and a half year old going on four twins um, I spent every single day eating dinner for six months in a row with my wife and my daughters. Um, how unbelievable that felt. Um, I will tell you, I will never go back the other way. I don't believe, I don't think I'm ever going to spend five days on the road again. Uh, maybe not even five days at an office, but I personally don't believe I'm, we're pulling in the direction where, uh, I'll never go to an office again and work from home. I, I actually get exhausted looking at the same walls. Um, I, I drive a lot of energy from the field and, and working with colleagues. So I do believe that collaboration is necessary, but, um, you know, I love the fact that I tell people all the time and I'm 
kind of laughing because it hasn't happened yet, but those, those munchkins will roll in here any second. And they're going to just ask random questions while I'm recording a podcast because I tell everybody um, I'm in their house, (laughs) (laughs) right? They're wondering why I'm here when they're supposed to be here and I'm not supposed to be where I'm at. They're like, Um, Hey you, why aren't you cleaning? You're supposed to clean up after me. Get off this, this call, whatever you're doing, you're having too much fun. Go start cleaning, get my food ready. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there is a, there is a sense of focus. I think I, I, I read somewhere that your, your kids are watching you work nowadays. Like my, my daughters often are in here in the room while I'm working and look, I'm a pretty passionate person. I'm an impatient person. And I like, you know, I, I like getting stuff done. I'll use that term. Um, and so I'm, they're watching me becoming human beings, understanding how to work, how to understand a level of patience. And I think it's also just created a sense of empathy for the world because you know, we're doing this on a Zoom. You can see what's happening behind me. I can see what's happening uh, behind you. And I think it's it's removed the this glass house of work versus home. You are who you are. If nothing else is coming out of this, if you're not authentic with what you're doing. And again, let me be clear. I still believe there's a separation of work and home. It just doesn't happen in the last eight months and it may not for the next six months. But who I, I always say this, who, who I am is not what I do and what I do is not who I am, right? Um, but there is a melding of that, right? Um, you have to be authentic. You, you probably need to work for companies that allow you to be who you are. You need to represent a company in an authentic manner so that you're not faking the funk at all. Because if you do fake the funk in the world right now, it's, it's all going to be sussed out pretty quickly. So this is all that forcing function that's taking place. It's happening with your families. I mean, how many of us have spent this much time with our families? Yeah. We didn't, yeah. not, not for the last 100 years. We went to office, they went to school, and then we came back together. Well, all of that is the same now. I think it's amazing. I think it's unbelievable. I love the fact that the most formidable years of my girls' life, um, I've been a part of. Uh, I'm sure there's parts where I want to get away for a day or two, and they want me away for a day or two. But I, I think we're, we're quite fortunate um, that this forcing function allowed us to get closer to our friends and family in that sense while we're actually socially distant. Yeah. I, you know, one of the reasons why I, I do kind of bring this up is it does seem to me that the, there is this societal trend that, um, you know, more people are getting married when they're older, more people are having kids when they're older. And then especially when you throw in COVID and this kind of younger generation that is very much kind of anti-committal, it does make me worry then in the sense of how much they do value relationships. You know, they might value friendships and they might have fun with all these friends. And again, these these lockdowns have kind of uh, restrained them from some of the fun activities. Hopefully, in substitute, it's made relationships or friendships more substantive. Um but again, I, I just I do worry that there's just not enough of the younger generation that is seeing the value in what it one of the one of the call it blueprints of succeeding in America and that being, you know, being in some sort of stable relationship, building a family, those kinds of things. Now, I think to your point, right, especially us where we're in our 40s and, you know, you have your little girls that may change with with their generation. But it just does worry me that, again, the, the, the people that are in their 20s or 30s, right, the, these ones that are going to come into the dealership world, into the automaking field, that I don't know if there's enough of the fact that, you know, there's value in having personal relationships and building a family and how that then works out for your career. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, first of all, we're getting old if we keep referring to everybody as that generation. Um, and, and we need to stop doing that. We look way too good for that. Um, <laughs> 
Well, that's it's that's that's, that's and we have we have all those like little stupid filters to thank, you know. That's, uh... <laughs> if you think about it, go back to your personal relationships uh, in March and April and May. Think about how often you were zooming with family members. Um, mm-hmm. Think about how often you were connecting with FaceTime with different folks that you didn't probably do that with over the previous couple. I think what it, what it showed us is that this need for human connection and interpersonal relationships is alive more than ever. That's why everybody can't wait for this to be, look, everyone, it's not like everybody can't wait for this to be over to go shopping at a store again. Cause I think we're all starting to get used to digital commerce. It's because I want to be able to pick up the phone and call my family and friends and have them come over without quarantine. I want to spend time with people that I used to spend time with, without having to overthink this, this process. So I think this is actually highlighting how, how uh, important these interpersonal relationships are, number one. I do think there's a, I don't know if it's the pandemic, but, but I think it's just a generational shift of how people value relationships, um, business relationships, I should say, more than anything else. To your point, you don't need to have a guy at the dealership, right? I, 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 don't, you know, I don't need to have a car guy anymore because having that guy, like when your friends and family used to ask you 20 years ago about buying a car, you said, oh yeah, I got a guy, I, someone I'm gonna send you to, right? Um, you don't need to necessarily have that if, if, the, if the operations are, are dialed in because they're using a market-based pricing system. It's a fair value for every consumer because the information is efficient and in front now. So what I need is someone who is going to facilitate that with me, show me the right product, point me in the right direction to get stuff done, and then um, really uh, create a sense of effectiveness of the purchasing process, meaning like, here's what you need. I've got this set for you. I can deliver this product to you at this good or service in the most optimized manner. And that doesn't take away relationships. I think it, what it does is it actually enhances uh, business interactions when somebody actually knows I, how to create a relationship. I, I hope. And actually, I think that's actually a really good point, right? I, there's this art to building and creating relationships that. I think I would argue right now is just very mundane. It's very stale and whatever. It's fun, right? You kind of have to go through these periods. We're still trying to adjust to a online retailing experience. So right now, unfortunately, one of the things that's going to be sacrificed as we build this new infrastructure is going to be the, those, you know, the competency of people that work at a retail store and them being able to, know how to build relationships, how to build trust and all those things. That, that's why customer service is going to be the great differentiator. We go into most of our customer service experiences with the mindset that this is going to suck. And when it just simply doesn't, when there's a smile at the other end of the phone or somebody actually helps you out as quickly as you think they were going to, think how happy you are. I mean, look at Amazon's a, the biggest e-commerce company in the entire world. If you've ever called them for customer service, it's actually pretty good. For, for that big of a behemoth, it's actually not bad. And, and look at how I'm saying that. We're pretty surprised and stoked to continue to give all our money because it's not that bad. Yeah. And, and that's kind of all we're, that's where the bar is now, that as long as it's not that bad, your net promoter score is over 75. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's funny that, you know, have you, have you always had the mindset of that, hey, look, guys, as long as this doesn't suck. And then obviously, again, it's the whole idea of under-promising, over-delivering. But is, is that a mindset you've always had? Because I could say that I've, I haven't always adopted that, especially in my no. 20s. No, I, 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 I have had really high standards for customer service. I don't know why. I, you know, my father was had his own businesses and he always treated every customer like a friend. Uh, so I grew up with that. My mindset has shifted, certainly, um, as 
digitization and efficiency and all that stuff is coming to play. So I am now of a mindset that uh, as long as it doesn't suck, it's, it's a pretty good experience. <laughs> so and if, I get a, if, if I get a smile to go along with that, I mean, you've, you've earned my money. I, I swear. I'm, I'm, I'm so with that, man. Um, that that's awesome. Well, I mean, how, how can people follow you? Yeah, I'm not a big social media influencer person, but I, I certainly am in, on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me through Roadster or just find Amit Chandarana on LinkedIn. Um, and, and I certainly like to dabble it up with everyone in the automotive industry about what we're doing and how we continue to make it better there. And how do you say cheers in the native Indian language? <laughs> well, well, native Indian language, there's 1.3 billion. So there's probably four or 500 ways that the language is used. But um, it's, it's, it's actually just cheers or Jeshi Krishna, which is more of a, uh, it's a God bless you. But uh, I'll just stick with cheers, man. That, that's the best way to, to, to make sure everyone stick knows. Stick with cheers. Okay. Because yeah, I was going to ask about that last one, but that one seemed like it was going to be a little too long there. <laughs> that's going to get convoluted. Yeah. Anyhow. Uh, well, thank you, Amit. It was great to talk with you. Great for you always always to share your insight into the automotive field um it's been you know like you said it was like it's almost three years since we last connected let's not wait that long to connect again sure let's do it next week let's 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 <laughs> roll with it man listeners take care th- listeners thanks for tuning into this episode of whisker weekly as we end every episode cheers prost lachaim kipis nastravi salut kampai mabruk tutsins gambe yamas nastarovie vo salute and saudi to the customer experience hey listeners thanks for tuning into this episode of whisker weekly Wisco Weekly is proudly supported by Automotive Mastermind. Automotive Mastermind is the leading predictive analytics and email marketing automation company in the automotive space. Be sure you give them a visit at automotivemastermind.com. You can even visit wiscoweeklypod.com slash mastermind to learn more. A big thank you to Amit Chandarana for being on the show. Be sure you visit the episode page if you want to learn more about some of the things that we were talking about and follow him on LinkedIn. And I'll be back with you next week. Have a good weekend, y'all.